Welcome aboard the Voyages podcast. I'm John Orkut, and this is the final episode of a four-part series on the connection between science and architecture in the Victorian world. If you haven't listened to the first three episodes, I recommend doing so now to catch up on how both scientists and builders took their inspiration from the past, while engineers made use of the cutting-edge technologies of the industrial age to build in new ways and for new audiences. Then, Head back here to explore how those same technologies in Victorian design laid the foundation for architecture's radical future. Queen Victoria Building is, fittingly, a strong contender for the most extravagant, some might say over-the-top, Victorian shopping arcade ever built. The familiar themes of the era are all here, all ratcheted up to eleven. It echoes the style of earlier European Golden Ages. In this case, the rounded arches and domes mark it as Romanesque revival. But the organization of these features is so complex as to put even London's Natural History Museum to shame. Walk inside and, unsurprisingly, you'll find yourself in a large central gallery with a glass roof overhead. But unlike the single floor of shops you might see in the arcades of Leeds, or even the two floors of exhibits at Oxford's Natural History Museum, here four stories stack up on top of one another, the upper three forming a series of walkways around open spaces that emphasize the gallery's height. Natural light streams in not only through the ceiling, but through a central, green-tinted dome, and through a bouquet of stained-glass windows that would look at home in a medieval church. But what really screams Victoriana is the complexity of the building's decoration. That stained glass, ornate enough in itself, is set in frames that radiate out from a central hub at the top of an arch, like the spokes of a gigantic wheel. Look out over the elaborate metalwork forming the guardrail along the upper galleries to appreciate the mosaic floors of the lower stories, which form a series of interweaving geometric shapes. You can also appreciate that, despite how complicated all these design elements are, the building's Scottish architect George McRae managed to keep everything rigidly symmetrical. Look up from these same balconies and you'll see the structure's most famous features, which again are supersized versions of a favorite Victorian device, the mechanical clock. One, the royal clock, forms the base of a Tower of London-like castle, where every hour on the hour, British monarchs from Canute, to Charles I's parade past a window. The other clock is even more gaudy, with a gilded case, markers showing the date and day as well as the time, painted landscapes, a figure moving constantly around the outer edge, and a whopping 33 historical scenes as opposed to the six kings and queens on the other clock. But while the royal clock differs only in degree from its counterparts in Leeds and elsewhere, the second clock really is something different. That figure moving around the outside is not a repeat of the English heralds that sound the hour from the castle parapets at the other end of the building, but an indigenous hunter. And while those 33 historical scenes include figures such as Yorkshire's Captain Cook, 
and a wide range of convicts transported from across Great Britain and Ireland, they also include a number of important moments in Aboriginal history. Because, its name and clear British influence notwithstanding, the Queen Victoria Building isn't in London. It isn't in any of the industrial cities of England's north or west, or from the Celtic fringes of the Isles. In fact, it's about as far from the Gothic revival seat of the United Kingdom's power in Westminster as you can get without leaving the planet. Australia may be on the opposite side of the globe from London, closer to the South Pole than the North, and bordered by the waters of the Pacific rather than the Atlantic. But when Sydneysiders opened the Queen Victoria Building in 1898, they were demonstrating the Britishness of their city. Similar architectural gestures were made at the same time in port cities around the world, from Calcutta to Cape Town to Vancouver, because all these cities were part of the largest maritime empire the world had ever seen. The aggressive conquest of overseas territories by England, and later the United Kingdom, started in the 12th century when the Normans invaded Ireland, and by Victoria's reign the result was a patchwork of coastal holdings on every continent except Antarctica. This globe-spanning empire represents the dark side of Victorian prosperity. Australian gold, Indian tea, and South African diamonds all helped fuel the UK's economy and were indirectly responsible for the glories of Victorian architecture. But the stories behind these industries are not happy ones, with major events often taking place at the barrel of a Redcoat's rifle or Royal Navy cannon. It was this navy, by far the largest in the industrial world, that held the empire together and made the boastful claim that the sun never set on the British Empire literally true. When the sun was shining in any of these far-flung territories, it was often shining on structures like the Queen Victoria Building that reflected the designs popular in London. It's not surprising that imperial taste would echo those of the home country. The ruins of Mediterranean-style villas, thermal baths, and amphitheaters that dot the English countryside show that this trend goes back at least as far as the Romans. But keeping up with the taste of the imperial capital requires lines of communication, which is not a huge problem when you're looking at a few days or weeks' journey by fast horse or boat between Rome and England, but is potentially a huge issue when trying to maintain contact between London and Sydney. Just look at the differences between the austere houses of New England and the classically inspired estates of Virginia, both former English colonies settled around the same time, to see what effect cultural isolation can have. As so often with Victorian architecture, science played a key role in removing these boundaries in the 19th century, and it did so in two ways. First, it allowed ships to be built on a larger scale and to be much, much faster. While countless innovations in materials and shipbuilding were important in this regard, the invention that looms the largest is the steam engine. Developed by English and Scottish scientists in the 18th century, it was perfected in the 19th. We've already seen how it gave passenger ships like Isambard Kingdom Brunel's SS Great Britain the ability to cross entire oceans in record time, and this increased speed would prove to be even more important for naval and merchant craft. The second major innovation that shrunk the Victorian globe was related to means of communication. The telegraph was a novelty when Victoria took the throne. By 1850, undersea lines connected England with France, Ireland, and the Netherlands. 
1866, the first transatlantic cable connected Britain and the U.S. Australia was looped in in 1872, and by the time Victoria died in 1901, the entire world was wired for instant communication. At the same time, the potential of two even more groundbreaking technologies developed by scientists with links to Britain, Alexander Graham Bell's telephone and Guglielmo Marconi's wireless system, was just beginning to be realized. It's hard to overstate how much of a sea change this rapid communication represented. Just a century earlier, it had taken the first fleet and its cargo of British convicts over eight months to reach Australia. Communication between the two continents now took a matter of seconds. Steam engines and telegraph lines built a bridge between London and even its most distant colonies, and the Queen Victoria building is a testament to how well-traveled this bridge was. So is the architecture of Australia's most English city, Melbourne. Walk the streets of Melbourne, capital of the state tellingly named Victoria, and you'll find the Royal Arcade, complete with mechanical versions of the Anglo-Welsh giants Gog and Magog ringing out the hours. You'll find the State Library, with its classical columns and octagonal reading room recalling the British Museum. And past the glass-ceilinged Old Melbourne Jail, you'll find the city's most iconic landmark, the Royal Exhibition Building. It was built for the same purposes as the Crystal Palace, and is nearly as grand, but announces the importance of its city in a very different, Romanesque style. Any one of these buildings would look at home in London, which would no doubt have pleased their designers. For really the first time ever, Victorian Britain had given birth to a truly global architecture, something that never would have been possible before. But for all the newly forged connections between them, Australia is not Britain, and within a generation Australian architecture had begun to follow its own path. If you travel to Melbourne's southern suburbs, you can see where this path led. At first glance, the houses you'll see share features common in the Queen Anne Revival style that it pulled eclectically from several Northern European sources. But Australia is much hotter than Northern Europe, so builders started adding verandas to their houses so that their owners could appreciate cooler outdoor air. And if, as John Ruskin argued, the best architecture was the architecture that most closely emulated nature, then where better to look for inspiration than the Aussie countryside and its wildlife? Kangaroos, emus, and endemic flowers began cropping up in the design of buildings and other structures. The fountain in Carlton Gardens outside the Royal Exhibition Building, for instance, features not the dolphins or fish so common in its European counterparts, but platypuses. Just as Australian flora and fauna had evolved into something unique after their ancestors first migrated to the continent millions of years ago, Victorian architecture in the Great South Land would be shaped by Aussie landscapes into what would become known as the Federation style. In other parts of the empire, different conditions would lead to different tweaks to the British template. Before we turn to the most consequential of these tweaks, we need to make a stop in the single largest territory in the empire, where the relationship between architecture and nature reached its peak. John Ruskin extolled Gothic architecture as being able to inspire in the same way as nature, he was doing so in a country, England, with a lot of stunning Gothic buildings and plenty of lovely pastoral scenery, but with little in the way of landscapes that could rival the cathedrals of York or Salisbury. Scotland, Ireland, and Wales had their share of dramatic mountains, but for a taste of the sublime, most British travelers headed to the continent to tour the Alps. 
What must the first British visitors to have crossed the Atlantic and two-thirds of a continent have thought when they arrived at what may be the world's greatest mountainscape in the Canadian Rockies? I am a frequent visitor, and I still find my jaw dropping as I journey through Banff, Kootenai, and Yoho National Parks, on the border between British Columbia and Alberta. It's a giant labyrinth of rock, ice, and forest that makes you feel overwhelmed by the power of nature in the best possible way. It's surely the kind of place that Ruskin had in mind when he urged architects to look to the wonders of nature, and a few builders were able to go one step further and use the empire's most spectacular landscape as both inspiration and setting. The American, Bruce Price, was one of these, and when he was hired to build a grand hotel in Banff, Alberta, he once again looked to the past to find a style worthy of the hotel's setting in a valley cut by a surreally blue river and surrounded by towering peaks. But instead of Gothic or Romanesque styles, he turned to a very British template, the brooding castles of the Scottish Highlands. The result was the Banff Springs Hotel, and if Ruskin was right about what makes architecture great, then it must be one of the greatest buildings ever constructed, because it accomplishes the seemingly impossible feat of holding its own in the midst of the scenery of the Canadian Rockies. The location was brilliantly chosen. Viewing it from the banks of the Bow River, your eyes are led up from the river through the forest to the towers of the hotel and beyond to the sheer walls of Sulphur Mountain just behind it. Especially on a winter day, with snow on the ground and sun breaking through the clouds looming above, it really feels like something out of a fairy tale. And it's far from the only place in Canada where nature and Victorian architecture complement one another so dramatically. Not far uphill is Chateau Lake Louise, with an even more otherworldly setting, though also with a hotel that's been so heavily renovated that its Victorian core is a thing of the past. The Canadian Parliament buildings in Ottawa don't have the benefit of the Rockies to back them up, but they did have the great good fortune to be built in spectacular Gothic Revival style in a bluff rising above the river separating Ontario and Quebec. The B.C. Provincial Parliament in Victoria takes its inspiration from the Baroque and Renaissance eras rather than the Middle Ages, but its location on the city's lovely inner harbor is yet another illustration of how Canadian buildings most effectively realized Ruskin's vision of linking architecture and nature. An illustration underlined by the sea lions and other Salish sea wildlife adorning the fountains around the building. But it was south of the border that the links between Victoriana and modern architecture were forged. And as it happens, some of the best examples of the early stages of this transition are just a short ferry ride from the BC capital. Dock steps from BC's Parliament, the Victoria Clipper makes frequent trips south to Seattle. As it plies the waters of the Salish Sea, it passes a coast shaped by glaciers, and towns clustered along the shore. These stand on the side of Coast Salish communities that have existed since time immemorial, but the current iteration of the towns nearly all have their roots in the later part of the 19th century. They share this age with towns across the American West, because at the same time Victoria reigned over the British Empire, the U.S. was undergoing its own period of rapid expansion westward. This expansion really accelerated after the Civil War, meaning that the backdrop for the Wild West, seemingly worlds away from the bustle of London, was Victorian architecture. The U.S. was, of course, not part of the British Empire, but the rapid speed of travel thanks to ships like the SS Great Britain and the ease of transatlantic communication helped create an appetite for the architectural styles popular in the U.K. 
Just as in Britain, these styles were often applied to commercial buildings, and you can see one of these just a short walk from the Victoria Clippers' Seattle dock. It's the Pioneer Building in the heart of the city's historic core, Pioneer Square. Lots of aspects of its design will be familiar by now, including intricate designs on every surface and rounded Romanesque windows and arches in abundance. But there are a few uniquely American touches as well. The most obvious is color. The British buildings we've seen are far from drab, but they've got nothing on the mix of sandstone, brick, terracotta, and metal that makes the Pioneer Building a vivid mix of red, gray, and blue. But where American builders really embraced color was in the design of houses. Think of Victorian houses in the U.S., and the image that pops into your mind is probably the Painted Ladies of San Francisco, or, if you're a Goonies fan, Astoria, Oregon. But cities across the country have great examples as well. Seattle has a few scattered Victorians, but Puget Sound's best are in Port Townsend, on the northeast corner of the Olympic Peninsula. Like so many Salish Sea cities, the downtown stretches out along the port, and above this line of red brick buildings are the bluffs where you'll find the best examples of 19th century houses. There are lots of shared design features between them, columned porches, peaked roofs with decorated eaves, and some really impressive towers, but what you're most likely to notice is the palette of pastel colors. There are greens, blues, yellows, reds, pinks, even a few whites, all of which pop even more because of the gray to dark green backdrop of the sea and surrounding forests. If you visit after this spring, you can venture into one of these, the relatively understated Rothschild House, to see how this color and complexity extends to the interior as well. It's not hard to appreciate the allure of houses like these, especially in the often overcast environment of western Washington. But bright colors and ornate decorations were not the wave of the future in American architecture, which is why Port Townsend, despite being a bustling town, feels like something out of the far past. It was another movement originating in Victorian Britain that would have a much broader impact on modern architecture. And if you head over to the dry eastern side of the Cascades, you can see how Victorian houses gave way to the next big thing. offers the rare opportunity not only to see the fruits of one of the major transitions in U.S. architecture, but to see it in the work of a single architect. The Northwest Museum of Arts and Culture operates the Campbell House, a mansion built and named for a local mining magnate in 1898. Campbell could afford the best, so he hired Spokane's finest to design the house, who at the time was Kirtland Cutter. You can wander through the house, and as you do so, you can see several themes Cutter pulled straight from the Victorian playbook a hodgepodge of historical styles, from the French Baroque to classical China, ornate decoration of the rooms and their furnishings, which Cutter also designed, and lots of references to the natural world, from floral wallpaper to a backyard gazebo overlooking the Spokane River. But Cutter was also heavily influenced by the arts and crafts movement, which, you may remember from the second episode of this series, focused less on the complexity of a building's design and more on its craftsmanship. In Britain, Glasgow became a major center for the movement, but it was in the U.S. that it really took off. There are few cities in the country that don't have great examples of what would become known in America as craftsman houses. Spokane happens to be especially rich in them, and in the many Kirtland Cutter houses around town, especially the Campbell House and the nearby Patsy Clark Mansion, you can see the beginnings of the features that would come to characterize the movement. 
Just as in Britain, there's less focus on embellishment and more on the natural materials used to build the house. Exposed wood beams are common. Crisscrossed half-timbering in the Tudor style became particularly popular in the U.S., and you can see some great early examples of this on the walls of the Campbell House. The Clark Mansion shows another, even more widespread, feature of craftsman houses. Rather than the high-rise, towered Victorians of Port Townsend, it was built to emphasize the horizontal, with wide roofs with shallow pitches creating overhanging eaves covering broad porches fronted by columns. Cutter hired artisans from around the world to create the interior furnishing, where you can see a third trend that would become hugely important in America's take on the arts and crafts movement. The Tiffany window in the Clark Mansion depicts a peacock, a favorite subject of designers at the time. In Britain, scenes of nature were common and were usually created in a naturalistic style. Had the Clark Mansion been built in Glasgow, it might have shown a peacock with its tail fanning out from its body. In Spokane, the body's gone entirely, but the feathers remain, cascading down the window and blossoming from hubs at the top and bottom. This more abstract way of celebrating the natural world would become central to the craftsman's style. Cutter's work dates to the early days of the movement and still has a distinct Victorian flavor to it, but Spokane is full of houses from its heyday. Perhaps the best collection of craftsman homes in the city is along Manitou Boulevard on the South Hill, where you can appreciate the pitched roofs, exposed beams, and column porches in all their glory. While on the hill, you'll also see some houses from half a century later, during the peak of the modernist movement, which emphasized even less cluttered exteriors and sleek, scaled-down interiors. The link between craftsmen and mid-century modern, though, is largely missing from the Lilac City. Your best bet is to leave Spokane and head east, to the city that's long been the crucible of American architectural innovation. Every important movement in American architectural history can be traced by walking the streets of Chicago. To track the epilogue to our journey through Victorian design and see the many ways in which it laid the seeds for modernism, you don't even need to leave a single neighborhood. Hyde Park is home to my alma mater, the University of Chicago, and while I might be biased, I think it's fair to call its campus one of the country's most impressive exercises in Gothic revival. Check out Harper Library for a stunning illustration on how to make an academic building look like a medieval church. It was also a well-to-do suburb in the early 20th century, meaning that there are some lovely craftsman houses to be seen. But it's two other buildings on the Chicago campus that really show how the Victorian arts and crafts movement paved the way for modern architecture. The older of these is no secret. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site and one of the most familiar works by America's most famous architect. But Frank Lloyd Wright was famous for a reason, and his Roby House marks an important turning point in the history of design. It's a masterpiece of the prairie style, an architectural movement that rose in and around Chicago and took many of the tenets of arts and crafts even further. The emphasis on craftsmanship is still here. Wright famously insisted on designing every detail of the house, not just its overall plan. So are the exposed natural materials and the use of motifs drawn from nature. But those designs are even more abstract in the Roby House, especially in its windows. Windows were important to prairie-style architects, who believed that a good building shouldn't just reflect the natural world, but should complement the environment around it, 
in a similar, if more subtle way, to Canada's great Victorian buildings. Wright accomplished this in the Roby House by surrounding rooms with colored, leaded glass made up mostly of abstract geometric shapes. Those shapes might be colored to emulate the hues of foliage in the spring or fall, or to evoke the form of cornstalks or the grasses of the Great Plains. To stand inside the house's luminous main room, masterfully separated into sections not by walls, but by less obtrusive barriers to create a single, unified space, is one of the greatest architectural experiences you can have in one of the world's great design centers. But Wright's commitment to emulating the flatlands of the Illinois prairies went even further, as he took the craftsman emphasis on the horizontal to the extreme. You can see how he did this most clearly from outside the house, where its design as a series of stacked, off-center terraces becomes clear. You can also see how Wright did everything he could to create features running the length of the house to further emphasize its broadness. Even the bricks are laid so that they seem to form continuous lines. Frank Lloyd Wright was not alone in wanting to take the ideas of the arts and crafts movement in bold new directions. Two of the biggest names in European architecture also thought craftsmanship was central to good design, but streamlined their buildings even more than Wright had done. The first of these, the Swiss architect Le Corbusier, designed a college president's house that was to have been built in the Chicago area, but sadly never saw the light of day. Happily, across the Midway, the huge boulevard south of the Chicago campus, you can see a building by an even more influential architect. Ludwig Mies van der Rohe was one of the leading figures of Germany's Bauhaus movement, which was directly inspired by arts and crafts and by prairie-style buildings like the Roby House. Unlike Ruskin and other Victorians, the Bauhaus didn't shy away from mass production, integrating craftsmanship into buildings built of industrially produced components. Mies fled Germany during the rise of Nazism and lived much of the rest of his life in Chicago, which is now home to many of his works. Among these is the university's Edith Abbott Hall, his very last building. Mies had moved beyond his Bauhaus roots by this point, and at first glance there seems to be nothing in common between the minimalist structure south of the Midway and the Gothic Revival halls to the north. But a few Victorian vestiges remain. Mies was especially well-known for wrapping his structures in full-length windows, showing the same appreciation for natural light that you can see in the Queen Victoria Building, the glass houses of Kew, and the great halls of Britain's natural history museums. The windows also break down the barriers between interior and exterior, showing that the connection between architecture and nature that Ruskin saw as so important mattered to Mies as well. And of course, the huge banks of windows wouldn't be possible without advanced metalworking techniques and glass production, precisely the same technologies that made the building where this journey started buildable. The road from the Crystal Palace and its concrete dinosaurs celebrating the Victorian fascination with the past, to the buildings of Wright and Mies that represented architecture's bold new future, is a convoluted one. Idealists like Ruskin and Pugin, who wanted to inspire or to rival the complexity of nature, probably would have hated Mises' pared-down, some would say oversimplified, buildings. But without their work, and without the Victorian partnership between technology and design, modern architecture, and all the more recent styles it spawned, would have followed a very different path. joining me on this final episode of our Victorian Voyage. 
Ever since visiting the Queen Victoria building as a kid, I've had a special fascination with Victorian architecture and all its glorious, frequently bizarre, complexity. When I learned just how close the connection was between my favorite building style and science, I knew I had to feature it on this podcast at some point, and needless to say, researching this episode was a lot of fun. I've really only scratched the surface here. Any one of the destinations covered would be worthy of an episode in and of itself, and I'll have lots of references to share on our website, voyagepod.wordpress.com. The blog post accompanying this series will be up shortly, and besides diving deeper into the destinations featured over the last month, there will be plenty of information for planning your own Victorian voyage. You can also contact me there with any questions, comments, or episode suggestions you might have. New this month, you can also follow me on Instagram at VoyagePod. I'll be using the feed to share updates about the show, but also to feature destinations I've visited that might not fill up a whole episode in and of themselves, but that are still worth sharing. After about a year and a half of this, I think I'm finally starting to get into the swing of podcasting, and I'd love to grow my audience in 2022. So now, more than ever before, I encourage you all to help me do so by rating, reviewing, liking, and subscribing to Voyages on the podcatcher of your choice. I'm also really hoping that the third calendar year of the pandemic will be its last, and that travel will become more and more feasible. As it does, I look forward to bringing you all episodes focused on new places, ideas, and stories, and I hope to bring in more voices to help share them. So stay tuned for an eventful 2022 on the podcast. Happy New Year! Thanks for joining me on our journey through Victoriana, and I hope you'll join me for all the voyages to come. <laughs>